My name is Jared Williams, and this is the Startup Blueprint, the podcast designed for entrepreneurs, startups, and anyone who has ever wanted to turn a good idea into a great business. My guest today is converting human footsteps into electricity, data, and rewards using groundbreaking technology. This technology is installed in smart cities, transport hubs, retailers, and companies. And as pedestrians walk across it, the weight from their footsteps compresses electromagnetic generators and produces energy. The company has successfully rolled out over 250 projects in 36 countries around the world, and they've captured over half a billion steps. The company has also won multiple awards, skillfully managed PR, and strategically navigated their way through multiple fundraising rounds. But my guest has also faced challenges and failures, including over 150 rejections from VC funds. And as we will see in this episode, he's also made considerable personal sacrifices. I think if you look at the data, right, 17% of startups give a return. Okay, so pretty poor return. So I think you're entering a minefield where you're not you're not destined to fail, but it's incredibly challenging. So I think you know, it's like spinning many, many plates. You've got 20 plates to spin. You know, you've got to develop a product, you've got to get a sales pipeline, you've got to convert some deals, you've got to deliver on those products. So to actually get anywhere near that, it does take a massive sacrifice. That was Lawrence Campbell Cook, founder and CEO of PaveGen, and you were listening to the Startup Blueprint. Now, this is a fascinating episode offering advice and insight into how to start and scale a business, how to manage your fundraising strategy, and how your greatest successes might just stem from your biggest failures. Let's dive in. To start off with is, look, I was, I was never a model student. I didn't get on particularly well at school. Um, I may have been chucked out of a few schools in my time. Um, I feel like I've channeled that energy in a better way now. But I, uh, you know, I studied. At, I started off at Dulwich College in London, but then went to a few schools in Canterbury. But the one I'll, I'll name is I ended up at Simon Langton Grammar School for Boys. Uh, I really got on well there, and it got me into design. You know, I realised that as, as disobedient as I was during my academic career, when I had a design project, I stayed up all night. I was like, this is fun. I'm going to do this. So I was always pretty tired the next day, but I just I was so passionate around design, and that bug caught on probably age 15, age 15, 16. Uh, design, I just realised was the, the thing for me. Mm. Do you, this is this is a genuine question because it's a, it's eerily frequent that people sit in front of me, capable, established entrepreneurs who have done cool stuff, and say that they struggled at school. I know I did. I was somewhere in between a little shit and a class clown for most of my time. Probably lucky not to be turfed out um do you think there's something there like that kind of is it too much energy is it being distracted is it finding something too easy is it not being challenged what what i think the first thing is, is you've got to look at the idea of too much structured learning starves creativity um you know there's multiple studies that show the more structure you put on a young person the less creative they are and i've always been really creative i've always had lots of energy i'm sure i've got adhd no one's ever actually <laughs> diagnosed it but sure i have and uh, i think that it's definitely a trend between me and a load of a load of other buddies in, in entrepreneurship. Same kind of vibe, just no one was that academic. But I used a point of massive point of tension of getting thrown out of school, mid GCSEs, having to go to new school, make new friends, start a whole new syllabus and new start new subjects from scratch um, in halfway through. I used that as like a turning point to absolutely accelerate and, and go from an absolute class clown, someone who was like, you know, I'd let fireworks off at school, smash windows, or everything you could ever imagine I did, to actually going, you know what, let's get on with this because I'm a, I'm a quote, unquote failure and I need to overcome this failure that I've, I've, I've seen so far and uh, that was my main point of going right let's get on with this interesting really interesting um, so you obviously did turn a corner because um, the next step I don't know if there was a gap in between but the next step was Loughborough yeah, exactly. So I, I got really into design and, and the natural thing for design, I guess it's quite easy when you're into it. It was industrial design, product design was my, my field. But ultimately, uh, there's only three universities you go to in the UK if you love design. And so the best one was Loughborough. So me and 10 of my classmates uh, from this, this grammar school all applied there because we had this fantastic design and technology teacher. We'd spend every lunchtime in the lab. We'd be using cutting edge facilities. We'd be going above and beyond in our projects. I was even working with Loughborough University during my A-levels at school. So when I when I applied, obviously naturally got in because we were already working at almost like a degree level. 
and uh, and off, off we went, and, and the journey started from there. Amazing, and and I I had such a similar experience. I was a historian, and I hated every subject across the board. Uh, and I remember sitting in a in a in a parents' evening, and my history teacher, who turned out to be probably the the, the most kind of impactful teacher I had referred sat down on my pe- and said to my parents this is the, this is the creature that was the creature from the black lagoon and he's and now look at him now and I remember that moment thinking hang on something I don't know if I'm proud of this or I should be digging my heels in but this feels like a turning point and I went on to study history lo and behold you know so wow. huge yeah. moment of impact you know, yeah like, it is good to yeah. have a teacher to recognize that it moment. is yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely so how, how long was your how long was the course you studied then at, at uni so I studied a four-year industrial design and technology program, um, and it was it kind of sucked because everyone else on my in my halls was doing six hours contact a week, and we did something like thirty-six hours contact time a week. So from the minute we started, there was no kind of crazy freshers week. It was work, work, work from day one. Uh, I don't really regret it. I feel like I did my my university time. I may have started age twenty-four, had a bit more fun in my life. But we we hit the ground running, and it was just really throw ourselves into it. So a uh, slightly different university career. And, and for me, it, it really started getting interesting in that I've been that kid that started learning about global warming and geography. You know, I like geography, I liked economics, and suddenly design, I realized a designer has more impact than a mercenary, than, than many governments, because a designer has the power to control mass-produced items like no one else on this planet. And I really started to understand early on that the power was, was in your hands as an industrial designer of what you could create. Mm. So were those the four years where you you realised that you wouldn't be sat in an office working for someone else? Is is at what point did you start to kind of understand that you you were going to go your own route and build something yourself and be an entrepreneur? Yes, yeah, so I've always thought about this. I've always been into entrepreneurial things. I guess from I guess I, I was a DJ at university and I I earned all my money from DJing and I promoted some nights and I suddenly realized if you put A and B and C together, you can, you know, you can get D. And so I, it I wasn't, kind of, it wasn't all working and sitting in the library then? There were some bits <laughs> that were like, I guess year, years two, uh, I got to do some other stuff that cool. was still around design because I'd design the night, I'd build it just like a design project. And I guess that taught me some things around it. And I think for me, the moment came when uh, I was doing a live project with Eon. So my, you know, Loughborough had a partnership with Eon and they said, Lawrence, look, we've seen what you've been doing. Would you like to come and work for us? And I was like, okay, great. I'm 20 years old. Um, they said, come to this power station and we want you to f- design us a new form of street lighting that will use renewable energy to power it. So they said, use, use the sun, use the wind. And I spent a year there, a huge amount of their money. I went to all these conferences and we were really well known as this ninja design unit hired by a billion dollar conglomerate to solve an issue of energy in cities. Like Google X, like yeah, that kind of like, kind you know, of the like, weird guys in the corner doing something cool. Yeah, so like we were like scared children, I had no idea. So I started working with the Solar Research Institute at Loughborough. Um, they invested half a million. Uh, Eon did in them. I didn't know what M and A and investing meant at that point, but I knew they really wanted to help us. Um, we found an amazing LED company um, called Advanced LEDs. Uh, Eon ploughed in money to them as well. So suddenly, we had this like arsenal of amazing tech and companies around us, thanks to Eon's activity. And what was interesting is I realised after a year, um, I realised that it wasn't possible to use renewables in dense urban areas. So I actually failed at Eon. So I had this amazing moment of being going 100 miles an hour, being in this amazing ninja team with loads of responsibility for 20 year old and failing. I got mm. to a point where it didn't work. So I hang in my head in shame. I actually left Eon, returned to Loughborough and I had these sleepless nights of worrying about energy and saying, well, well how am I gonna power the city? I, I failed, I need to find a solution. So most other students would have other things on their mind. But for me, it was really, I failed. I need to find a solution to this problem. And, and that's when I started addressing the issue of energy in cities. And it, it kind of started me on this journey in that on your final year at, in industrial design, you've got to build a product and you've got a year to build it. And that's a large portion of the, the result. And I ended up um, thought, okay, how am I going to find a solution for energy in cities? I thought, what if a bus stop could generate energy? What if you could uh, punch a bus stop and the energy of punching it would generate power? And I was like, okay, well, what if you kicked it? Okay, what if you could do something else? And I was like, okay, well, hold on. What if you could just walk near a bus stop and generate power? 
what if you could have a pavement that would generate energy? And so I, I had this idea and I remember my, I lived with five designers at uni. Um, one of them founded a company that have just raised 80 million, a toothbrush company called GetQuip. Um, and all are doing amazing stuff in design. So I was in the geekiest household in the whole of Loughborough. At three in the morning, yes, we were all sitting there having coffee, discussing our projects. I had six desks in my room. Okay, one was for mechanical designs. So the only banging coming from my bedroom at uni was sad, sadly from <laughs> machines that I'd built. Um, I had an electronic desk uh, that would be wiring. I had a drafting desk. I had a CAD workstation. And then I had one full of rigs, mechanical rigs. And so I went away and in 14 hours, I built my first prototype that showed that a footstep would generate power. And I think I, I kind of saw this thing. and I, I kind of fell in love with it. I was kind of like, damn, I've got to execute this product because it's it's cool and it could have huge impact. And whatever it is, I've got to do it. And I knew probably from three months into my final year that I was on a mission that was not just a university degree project. Yeah, and so what, what year was that? This was 2009. 2009. And so that's also the year that PaveGen was incorporated, right? Yeah, so what happened was I um, I spent, I actually won uh, the Royal Society of Arts Design Directions competition. So they had a £5,000 prize. So I designed a new service for making rural post offices uh, a better place to be because they were often in pubs and there were lots of lonely old people and the service wasn't fit for purpose. So anyway, designed a solution, won the top award. That £5,000 allowed me to take this small prototype and make it real. Um, what I did with £5,000 then is what I do today with about £200,000. So it was very, very, very lean back then. So I, I got the prototype, I developed it, I went to factories, I pretended I was a company. I, in a way, kind of persuaded manufacturers that this was real. Are, we, are we talking you jumping in the car and staying in the UK when you say a factory or are you... Persuading so companies the, abroad. The, the great thing about being in the Midlands of is course. there was a relatively rich industrial setting. So I would may have may have still had my Eon business card, may have kind of had some slightly persuasive conversations. And then um, what happened was I, I graduated, I had this prototype, and I got some headlines. I, I went, I actually went abroad for a few weeks with some of my, my buddies, and um, I was in, I think I was in Vietnam, and suddenly I got in the mail, the Telegraph, there was a tweet every twenty-two seconds, and I was like, how did this happen? Like, why, why is so? I had headlines like. What genius, W-A-T-T, -T, what genius, and then my prototype. So I was like, okay, and I, I built a basic website almost for fun, and um, I got a 1,000 emails a week, people saying, can I buy it, can I distribute, and can I invest? And I was, I was meant to actually go to New York to go and develop the new range of street furniture for an industrial design practice. And I was like, I phoned them up, I was like, no, I'm not going. And I'm like, this is my mission now. And although the company was, was um, formed in 2009, um, I spent five years researching it in a bedroom in Brixton. So I didn't really have revenue and it was hard. It was a credit crunch. Um, I was a guy with an idea. Um, I was a new product category. So I wasn't like a Me Too brand. This was in a way before the era of entrepreneurship. You know, I, I was in meetings with a lot of old grumpy men who were investors. And I was like, should I dye my hair gray so I fit in? Like it wasn't, there were not accelerators that didn't, we work didn't exist then. So this is a completely different era. That are you wearing was, a tie? Probably, yeah, because yeah. I thought I had to, right? So, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the distinction. Yeah, so the, the, it was complete. So I had a five, five very, very painful slow years mm. of going from idea to actual product. So how, how did you fund that those five years then living in Brixton? Yeah, so it was hard. So actually, the first thing I did was I lived off prize money. So I'd enter as many awards as I could. And, you know, I'd, I'd get that 5K here and there. And that would, like, literally pay for bread and, mm. and water and living. So that was the first thing. Um, the second thing is I went I went to 150 VCs. So I had a trolley. I had a paved gen unit on a trolley. And I dragged it all around London. And, oh, my God, we had to carry it. I remember Liverpool Street Tube has, like, 65 stairs. And I had to carry this really heavy steel prototype up to all these events. And everyone was like, great idea, but we don't think it will work. And it was incredibly challenging. I, I thought about giving up many times because no one wanted to invest at that point. So the first thing I did was um, I just believed, I was like, I'm gonna do this, this is my job. This is my calling in life to execute this product. So the first thing I did was um, me and a friend, we broke into a building site in the South Bank and there was some building work going on. So I went into the building site and um, I was carrying this prototype. It was 2 a.m. Now, I had no standards, I had no insurance, so no compliance on the product. So if I phoned you up and you were a building company, you'd have said, no way, you're not gonna do an installation here. But what I did is I, I went in at two in the morning, we dug a hole, we went as deep as we could, we laid the paved gen kinetic floor in the ground, we wired it up to lighting, so when you stood on it, the energy from your step would power lights, 
and then we connected it, mixed some cement, um, cemented it in place, took some photos, and ran away giggling, I guess, as if we'd done something wrong. And um, <clears throat> the next day, the building company were very upset that someone had broken into their site and illegally installed a product. But I also got a call from Westfield Shopping Mall. So this is as the, the Westfield Olympic site was being developed in Stratford. Right. And they said to me, Lawrence, um, did you do an installation yesterday? I was like, yes. And they said, um, did it work? And I was like, yes. And they didn't ask me, uh, does, did you have permission to was install it? Was it legal? So I didn't actually lie. And I think you know, with entrepreneurship and being bold and hustling an idea, you've got a growth hack. Growth hack to the absolute limit. Look over the edge. Look fear in the eye. But, but like, don't lie and don't, don't do anything that is a, an actual crime in the UK. The, I guess breaking into building site is a crime, but I kind of... Thought, I heard it summarised as um, you've got to break some rules, but not some laws. Yeah, yeah. so I think there's got to be a bit of hustle there. And, and so Eon phoned me and said, look, does it work? Yes. Did you install it? Yes. Can we have an install? And I was like, yeah. And they go, how much? And I'm like, uh, £200,000. And they paid me £200,000 the next week. So I went from guy with an idea, slightly weird, five years in a bedroom, didn't really talk to my friends much, just on my own in this kind of weird idea. And then, bang, we, we closed the 200K deal. Then I did 150K seed off the back. And the, the seed funding came because I, I built a rig that would allow me to simulate a million footsteps on my product. So PaveGen generates energy from footsteps. And it's one of the harshest engineering environments known to man. So if you think about a floor, it gets hell on earth every day. Huge temperature fluctuations, which mean that different materials expand and contract at different rates. Liquid you, pressure. Yeah, yeah, liquid God. going in, vandalism, extreme heat, because you're basically putting an oven underground. So it was actually really difficult to create a product that had a, a high design life. But what happened is I built a rig, I got the rig up to a million steps, and it was a huge mechanical contraption um, in garage. And um, what happened is I had a dinner party, invited as many rich people as I had in my Rolodex, and I got them to come as couples, so man and a woman. And uh, they'd after the first course, they'd come out into the garage, see me in my lab coat, looking like a crazy engineer, see me, see the prototype, see my pitch, and then and there, 15 couples put in 10 grand each. Wow. So I got my seed. Uh, and th hey, these guys have done pretty well given the valuation then and now, and yeah, they're amazing fantastic. people to believe in me. So yeah. So co a couple of questions there. So the um, the 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 because it wasn't an investment. The contract with Westfield that was the first non prize money that came in into the company. Is is that right? Yeah, that was the first deal. Wow, that we, we had yeah, fantastic. Um, so just just jumping back into the, I guess your mindset. Um, you know. Slogging, getting rejected 150 times, slogging around London. Um, what, a couple of questions. What was it deep down that kept you going? And at that time, and it's a question I ask everyone, at, at that time, if I'd, if I'd met you on the tube and understood your idea, and if, I'd, if I said, in your wildest dreams, what does success look like to you right now? Where's, where's this thing going? So what kept you going and, and what, was, what did success look like all the way back then? Yes, yeah, so I think the thing that kept me going was like, I really believed in this idea and I thought, worst case, I'm going to make a floor that lights up a bit like in the film Big, right? Or, or like the Michael Jackson floor. I was like, worst case, <laughs> I'm the guy that built a cool, self-powered light up floor. And I just thought that was cool enough to put my name on it. Worst case. And then I was like, best case, hey, maybe we can be a new power source for the world. Maybe we can give our product for free and, and then councils around the world can pay us for the energy it's produced. So. I guess that was like the thing that kept me going. And, and I, I must admit, look, I forgot about a lot of my friends. Like I just got my head down and worked. And I often realized those five years went quick. They went so fast because I just believed in this idea. And that was my main reason for existing on this planet. And then when you look at what does success look like, look, we were in a period, 09, 10, 11, 12, entrepreneurship was not cool. Like Zuckerberg's name was only just coming out there as like a young CEO and he did a huge amount for making it acceptable. There was, it's, we're in a year of the entrepreneur. We're in the era where everyone's starting companies and that's fantastic. There's, there's way too many accelerators in London. There's, it's just everywhere. But back then, it, there was no like, real Elon Musk to look at or anyone like that. So I didn't really have this vision to try and like be a, a kind of one of these A-list, uh, I'm, I'm not saying I'm an A-list person, but there was no A-listers mm. per se to look up to. There was Dyson, we all knew about Dyson, but even then Dyson wasn't that famous. Um, so I, I just wanted to like, I guess I just wanted to earn a salary. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to like be able to take a paycheck. That mm. was probably my objective because I didn't really have anyone to look at. And hey, look now, look, we've all seen it. We've all we've all seen the movies. We've seen the social network. We've all got these A-grade people to look at. So of course now it's different.
Interesting. Um, so I, I sense that this question is going to be understandably a little bit cagey. But what is, understand, explain the underlying technology as best you can without giving away too many secrets. Yeah, so um, the paved-in technology converts the weight of your footsteps into electrical power. So whenever you walk over our product, it converts your weight. The heavier you are, the more power you get. So actually in America, we have a slightly higher yield on, on our products. Um, and so it produces energy. Now, we also produce data as you walk on it. So the use case is you go to a city center, 10,000 people a day walk over our product. And then at night, the lights are powered from the energy stored in the day. So the more people, the more power there is. Now, the tiles produce data, so we get analytics on how people move. We give digital rewards based on how much energy people produce as well on their steps. And we actually drive footfall to retailers. So the secret source, the thing that I patented at university, was a way to create the downward motion of a step into a very, very efficient form of energy. Mm. So our product operates an efficiency of about 55%, which is really good in this world. And the, the competitor technologies are things like piezoelectric. So anyone who's ever used uh, an oven where you push a button and it, it has a spark, or an electric lighter where you, you depress the clicker and you get a spark, that's what was out there. And, and we created something that was, was far, far more superior in an order of thousands times more energy that was capable from a single five millimeter deflection of a step. So right. that was a secret thing that we suddenly went, whoa, this is this is super cool and a real thing it suddenly become the, the I, I assume that massive up uptick in efficiency is what actually makes this not a pipe dream right it's actually turning on lights and it's it's feasible i think it took me you know i built 700 prototypes so far um i've got patents dating from um i've got about four patent families so i've i filed my design if you like and yeah. I, I've, I've got I've got dates uh, going 09, 13, 14, 15, 16. So we, we've filed a lot of intellectual property around this because it keeps evolving. The, the kind of concept that I, I came up with, which is on the base of an electromechanical harvester, is still the same, but we've changed the embodiment of it. Um, but that's why we're special. That's why it's really, really special. We're owning the kinetic space. So imagine a car in the future generating energy on a paved gen road. You know, they're all things that we can deliver in the future with, a, with our IP. Mm. Very, really, really damn exciting. Um, so, you mentioned then, and, and it's and it's something you know every every entrepreneur, even when they're on their own, says. But we, we are doing this. So, what what does the team look like these days? Yeah, so I think I had a really interesting moment of like when it was just me, I still said we, but now like it's so important to write that the team does everything. I'm, you know, I don't do anything anymore in the same way as I used to. So it's all about we and I, I use the word we because I think it's so important to you know, reference the team who are important. So we're a team of 30 engineers, designers, uh, project delivery people, salespeople, electronic engineers, mechatronic engineers um, and so forth. We, we're based in, in London, in King's Cross. We have a R&D campus in Cambridge. So a lot of our deep tech happens there. We're one of the best places for hiring. Uh, we have a manufacturing facility in Wood Green in North London. There's no Chinese factories here. We're, That's, we're, we're, now yeah. that does surprise yeah, so we're, me. Wood we're Green, wow. North London, supporting British production. Good for you. Yeah. And then we've got offices in about 11 different countries, small offices. And our, we've, our main one is in San Mateo in Silicon Valley. Interesting. Oh, something I did notice actually, as I, as I was kind of doing a little bit of digging and a little bit of um, just looking at your website, but also on Google Images, I noticed that those those two things, the older the images, that I found that the two things that you you focused on creating was um, electricity and data, and it seems to be added to recently with with rewards. How how is that working? Yeah. So I think I set off and, and maybe to, to frame it is I set off as an energy engineer trying to address an energy problem. Now, I put it into a school after I did the, the building site I mentioned earlier. And, and what was really interesting about the school installation is kids loved it. And, and yes, we're generating energy from sets, but kids absolutely loved walking my product. And I said, hey, look, we've created something people really like to do. And if I look at the big picture, the big picture is that smart cities are developing faster than ever before. They're putting technology into these smart cities to make it with seamless mobility, great connectivity, sensor networks. Hey, Google are even building cities right now. So Sidewalk Labs are redeveloping Toronto and they're having bins that are monitoring how much waste is going on it. Um, they're monitoring the, the benches in the parks to see how many people are on there. And everything you do is being monitored. And, and like, 
people don't really want that. Like they're getting sued pretty bad, um, Google, what they're doing. So I, I see this thing with smart cities being, smart cities need to have technology, yes, but it should be about people, not just IoT. So Internet of Things is a, a widely used phrase in, in the smart city world. But instead of the Internet of Things, I believe in the Internet of Beings. I believe it's about people first because we humans, we need, we need people. We need them to do something which is generating energy physically. And then we need to have a digital component. But it needs to work as a community-driven plan to make cities a better place because I want to be happy in my city. And so mm. we have this philosophy of, of making people a big part of cities. Now... What we realize is that not just as an energy tool, you know, paved journey, it offers a way for people to engage in sustainability, to be part of their city. We have in Washington, D.C., a stone's throw from the White House, we have an installation. People have their lunch and jump up and down every day nonstop. And I'm going up to them, I'm like, hey, are you okay? You've been jumping on my product for two hours. And they're like, yeah, I'm powering my city. I'm making a real change in my city. And hey, look, it may be small what they're doing, but they feel a massive ownership on that energy. Mm. So we made this kind of insight and we realized that actually, if you can drive a a way to actually reward people for their steps, it's a really sticky experience. And I I kind of, one of the people that was a really important mentor to me was a gentleman called um, Jeff Martin. Um, Jeff was head of multimedia and entertainment at Apple. He spent the best part of a decade working with Steve Jobs. Um, Steve Jobs introduced him to his wife, who was head of Apple Education, um, called Susan. And, and together, they were some of the, the kind of the brightest stars uh, at Apple. Now, we got together a few years ago. We started talking and, and really realized that, hey, we've got such a great opportunity to capitalize on this amazing sticky experience that people love in cities. So we built on a reward mechanic that says, well, hey, if you walk into a mall, you do 50 steps, I'll give you those 50 steps. And you can exchange that energy you've, you've generated for rewards. And so what I do is I actually drive footfall to different retailers based oh on the gosh. rewards people get. Because the way I look at it is, is I, I care about energy. I'm sitting here as someone who spent more than a decade looking at energy. Now, there's a light bulb above our head. Now, I don't, I'm not actually upset about that light bulb and how much energy it uses. Now, not because I don't care, but... I don't know that I just don't, I actually, maybe I don't care because it's just another light bulb in another city. So we actually realize that people don't necessarily care that much about their, their energy, but they do care if they get their energy and they can see the real impact. So we make it tangible for people. And, and that's what's led to the kind of the most recent addition to what we're doing with the company. Mm, it's damn exciting. Um, so after the, so wh- where your deal flow then, after that first big contract, um, I, you know, I did a little bit when I was doing the digging. You've now these numbers might be out of date. Over over 150 projects, or is that now heavily out of date? Those numbers. Yeah. So we're now. Um, I'll give you the headlines now. So yes, we, we operate do. in 36 countries. Yeah. Um, we've got over 250 projects around the world, and we've just hit half a billion steps on our product internationally. Uh, my aim is to do a billion steps a month. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna work up to that. I've got a couple of years to get that. I think we need to be in India first, mm. uh, and and yeah, that that's where we are at the moment. Got you. And so, if someone said, like, you know, uh, what what would be the who'd be the best company to come knocking on you? Would it be would it be at government level these days? Or what? Who are you looking to <clears throat> open the door to? Well, I'll give you an idea. So look, PaveGen is a technology that works in cities. Now, I work with government, so federal US government, um, but I also work with brands. So for example, like Google are a client. Um, We recently partnered with BNP Paribas, so a huge bank, and and rolled out across a number of banks in California. Um, But then we'll also go into um, retail groups. So we'll be able to work in, in, say, retail in an airport, so Heathrow Airport, Abu Dhabi Airport, even sunny Birmingham Airport is now a client. It's not people don't quite get Birmingham as as exciting as Abu Dhabi Airport. But then we work with Uniqlo, um, Adidas, H&M. So I, I look for, in terms of deal flow, I like government contracts, and we're working on some amazing smart city contracts that are, that are like astronomical numbers I could never have dreamed about in the future. But they're lumpy, and they, they take a long time. And hey, if you're a government of, of Moldova, hey, I've got a three-year cycle till you're actually going to pay me. So we like to mix these lumpy deals in with lots of short-term things, which are with agile retail brands or retail operators. And how I actually started developing that model, how I started developing it, is I said, I have 10 products. Do I want to sell the first 10 I've hand-built or can I rent them? So actually the first two years of PaveGen, I ended up renting for say 250K. I'd rent my products for a weekend at the Paris Marathon. They'd come back and then I'd go and rent it for 200K. Uh, I'd cover the mall, uh, the roads in Brighton for a bank. 
um, and just use it for rental. Now we, we do about 5% rental, but it got me to where I needed to get to in terms of mm. revenue, funding R&D. And, and people said PaveGen's a gimmick. And I said, well, hey, I'm growth hacking my way to revenue here. And, and now we've done that pivot. So we're now installing permanently you know, across the world. And that's always been my ambition. But you've got you to take those steps to get there, literally. Yeah. Have um, you, you mentioned some people thinking it's a gimmick. Have you, I, you know, there, there's a few articles out there that that's you know the the criticism tends to be that the energy actually generated is is not significant. So do you do you care? Is it is that even accurate? Are they missing the point? What do you generally feel when so, when someone? I mean, personally, I went the second I I because I I saw you and we'll come on to it in a minute. When I saw your business raising on, raising on CrowdCube, I was hook line and sinker sold. Like I just loved it instantly. And I struggled to find reasons why people couldn't respond in that way in this day and age. Mm. So how, how, do you, how do you respond to negative criticism? Yeah, I think that whenever you're building a company that I guess we, we, we really work hard on profile, you know, in terms of smart cities, we're out there. Look, there's always going to be haters. There's always going to be negativity. I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is, look, we're in the energy space. Um, the energy is immensely controversial. You know, some people don't agree with wind. Some people are, are saying, you know, that solar doesn't work in many locations. So obviously it's, that's going to be controversial. But l let's look at the nuts and bolts in it. That PaveGen is not being sold as the main energy tool to power the world, right? I'm not going to solve the world's energy problems just from people walking. Now, what I will do is I will pay, play part of a mix of energy in the future. So in a city, I will power a portion of the energy requirement in the city if there's people. If there's not, we'll use solar. But I think the way I look at it is that solar works really well um, if you're on a, in a field, on a rooftop, and wind works great out at sea. But actually, look, in a city, imagine in a subway, there aren't many other options. Now, we're not, we need to be part of the mix of energy solutions. And we're, the product is expensive. I'm making it in North London. I'm scaling up production. I plan to make the product the same price as normal flooring. So when I can fully industrialize it, I will make it that price and mm. we'll get to a price where in the energy world, we talk about the levelized cost of power. We'll get to a levelized cost of power that will make it more efficient than solar in 90% of applications. And that's really, really exciting. Um, but it will take me a lot of funding. I need to build the biggest flooring factory in the world. And hey, look, the first Tesla car was 200,000 bucks and didn't drive far at all and was pretty awful by all accounts. And now you can pick one up for 35,000. I'm not saying Tesla cracked it, but someone like that has, they, they've, they've taken that journey, they've evolved the product, and hey, in 10 years, yeah, my kids will be, be driving a really low-cost electric yeah. car, and, and maybe Tesla had something to do with it, maybe it's not them, but mm -hmm. I just believe, you know, we've got to iterate our product, we've got to develop, and you, no startup can never nail it in their first iteration of their product. No, absolutely. And I, I, listen to you speak then about the simple fact that certain form of renewables don't work in certain environments. Seems that your bit, that was your big learning from... The, the eon failure understanding that this these street lights couldn't be you know they couldn't be run by these two two two, two methods and you ended up with the one that does work in that environment the, the, the urban environment where there are lots of human beings but not enough sun not enough wind whatever or not regularly enough yeah that, that insight is something that it stayed pretty true to me um, but I think that alongside that insight, look, things change and, hey, we, we may just use the data from PaveGen in the future and that could be our biggest revenue source. So I think you, you've got to keep nimble. You, you've got to, I think quick wins and even faster fails are so important in our world. And you've just got to keep iterating and iterating and being hungry and being innovative because if you don't, Cisco will, right? Or Siemens will or mm. any of those lovely big companies who obviously I love as clients, but hey, they can't innovate anywhere near the speed of an agile startup. No. No, very interesting. Um, so we touched very briefly on um, you know what the team looks like here and abroad. Um, who, what did the first hire look like, and, and what was that process like? Were you were you filling a gap? Um, you know, are you are you? There's certain spots in the business that you uh, are weak in. Are you are you not a natural salesman, but you're a designer? Are you both of those things, but you're not a financial guy? Are you all those things, but you're not a marketer? What were you looking for in that first person? Yeah, so I guess I'm going to caveat this by saying, look, I've never had a real job. I've learned from all my mistakes. I've taken a long time on this business. I've made massive failures. I've, I've fired boards. I've had boards try to fire me. I've had I've had so many mistakes. So like hands down, not say I'm the expert, but I learned from my mistakes and I haven't done an MBA that has given me all the answers. And I, I don't actually think an MBA can give you every answer to how to run a business. So I'm a guy who's only ever been in the trenches. So I think that's the first thing to say. My first hires, 
I got five electronic engineers because I thought I had to solve a technical problem. Um, it didn't really work out. Um, then I bought on a intern who was like a friend of my sister's. And you know what? That intern, he grew up, he became a commercial director, and he closed a million of deals with me. You know, Love And it was that. me and him. He's called Jonathan Keeling. He's heading up partnerships at Crowdcube now, and he's a dear friend. And hey, look, we, we went through and we hustled. Now, was he a, a, a 20 years experience in a blue chip? No. The guy was 21. He's a bright guy, you know, geography degree, and he's a hustler and, and a, a very professional hustler. But, you know, we went out and we, we turned a lump of metal that didn't work very well into a revenue stream. Okay, but now, you know, to, to, to look at it in a, where we are in a more mature point, look, I, I, at the moment, I oversee all parts of the business. I get involved in a bit of finance. I, I think that sales is the lifeblood of a business and the, the, any CEO should be the company's best salesman. So I, I started off by being the only salesman in the company and, and I guess doing B2B sales for me is the act of storytelling. It's, it's not necessarily like cold calling, it's just telling stories. And, and that's how we got to our kind of first few million of revenue. Um, but now look, I've got a fantastic head of sales who runs that. I've got a fantastic chief technology officer. Um, the, the, the interesting story about my CTO, it's called Craig Webster, is um, when I first came out of uni with my idea, I Googled who is the best technology consultancy in the UK? And I came out with a company called Cambridge Consultants. They invented Bluetooth. It's full of the smartest scientists ever. So I drive into their, their uh, office and I go, guys, I've got funding. White lie, didn't have any funding, but I went in and I carried this wooden prototype. I met a team of these seven amazing engineers and uh, the head of clean technology was, was Craig Webster. Craig said to me, he patted me on the back and he goes, good luck, mate. You're going to need it. And kind of almost they laughed as I walked out. They were very nice, but they obviously knew I was a kid with an idea. And um, four years later, I find them up and I'm like, hey, Craig, um, we've just done two million revenue. Uh, can you come and join my team? And you know what? He dropped everything and he left his role of head of clean technology at Cambridge Consultants and became my chief technology officer. So, hey, it goes full circle, right? So I'm lucky to have him in charge of our R&D operations and what we're doing. So that was a really big moment. So yeah. I guess look, now I've got heads of every silo, um, a great COO, a uh, great head of like corporate finance, uh, a great board of directors. Um, and so I kind of jump in and out of problems and generally mm. solve them and, and do a lot of the international growth. So I spend around six months a year on a plane. Uh, I don't really believe in Britain as a market. I love Britain because it's obviously where I'm from, but you, they're not doing projects here like they are in the rest of the world. Mm, interesting. And so what, what, have you, what have you tried to do on a cultural level then, both in terms of like what the type of person you've looked to hire, but what, what is it that you try to instill in, in, in your team? What type of team have you tried to build? Yeah, so it's, a, it's an interesting challenge in that as you scale and hire, hire different people, you're never going to get an entire batch of people from the same DNA. I think we've, we've tried to define our culture in a few ways. So we look for people who are like paved engineers, we call them. So people who can come up with an idea that changed the world, um, keep the, flatture, um, the structure as flat as possible um, throughout that side and keep people always asking questions and being very curious. So what will usually happen is they'll go through the interview process and I'll be the final kind of gatekeeper, if you like, to check culture. And we really want people to be passionate and hungry about what we're doing. Um, and I think that's been good. I think that I'm probably the most annoying CEO in the world because if I have an idea and I'm excited about it, I will stop everything and like pull the whole company in one direction and not stop jumping around literally till I've got it. So I'm aware <laughs> that's like a shortcoming and I get obsessed with ideas and you know if I've got to do something, I do it. And um, Is that why you clash with, you mentioned a couple of clashes with boards. Is, is that where that stems from? I think, I can't comment too much on it, but I think that was due to my lack of experience. You know, mm. I think that when you're an early stage person with an idea, everyone comes jumps on you and everyone tries to make you feel like you're not doing the right thing and you're doing it wrong. And I think like the biggest learning I've had is like being confident and backing yourself and learning to tell people like, no, like that's not right. Because I had so many, I had investors going, hey, Lawrence, I'm going to invest in you, um, but you've got to pay my son this salary. And I was like, I actually thought that was all right on day one. I didn't do it. I didn't do it, just to add. But I had all sorts. And that, that's actually probably like the, the least, the most okay one. I, I had so many crazy investors coming up to me with all sorts of scams and everything as in 09, 010, 11. And I really didn't know the better. Now, we mm. know, I know, I know, I can look anyone in the eye and be like, look, 
dude, that's not a good deal for us. We're out and that's fine. But I just didn't have the confidence back then. So I think, you know, there's been a lot of learnings in that journey. I think that build it, when you build a company on your own credit card and, and run out and close deals, um, it's a very different company to one with the level of governance we have now and fiduciary responsibility that it comes as you scale up. And so in a way, I've had to change who I am every three months of the past 10 years. I have to be a very different person because mm. I was a, I had to be a great inventor in my bedroom. But now I've kind of got to lead a board and lead a team and, you know, manage new developments and corporate partners and strategic relationships and, you know, be able to hang out in China and find amazing people to help us, which is very, very different. So um, I think it changes every day. Yeah. So you, we, we've touched, we've kind of skimmed around um, investment um, a, a little bit. So let's try to get an idea. Of, uh, there was, you went through a period of um, almost prize hacking your way through funding and then you landed the first um, external investment. Then there was the fantastic, by the way, fantastic um, garage, um, almost razor-thon. Um, after that, am I right in saying that you raised 300 and 350 around 2012? Something, something yeah, in there. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, and then from there you were into was that was with angels. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, and from there you've been um, one round of crowdfunding, 2015, and now we are mid crowdfunding at the moment. Is that right? Uh, there's some other stuff okay. on that. So just to maybe frame it is, I don't believe in the new startup culture of of people going right seed ABC, and and I almost find I get a bit fed up in tech events where. You know, the founders like, yeah, we're Series A, we're B, and, and like it's like their badge, and like, yeah, we're A, and and, and I've, I bet so many young teams that are just transfixed on doing a Series A with a VC, and that's all they care about because they think that that's like a badge of belonging in some kind of club. And in my book, actually, a lot of the time it means you just got screwed on terms with the liquidation preference. So, what I believe in is I believe in preserving equity for founders. I believe in looking after your shareholders by having. Um, the same share structure throughout. So I don't like, I don't have any prefs in PaveGen. So what I did is I, I bought on multiple small rounds of funding throughout my journey that capitalized me when I needed it rather than doing one big slog. So a quick example, as you said, 150K friends and family, then 350K London Business Angels, then Harvard Business Angels, half a million, then a 2.1 million crowd fund, then a million from seed investors. Now we're just closing around two. Um, and now we've got the valuation up to a, a level where I'm happier to raise bigger numbers. And all that was like 1 million valuation, 2 million, 5 million valuation. And then we got we hit 8, and then we hit 16. And it was just kind of going through those uh, hoops. But I know so many guys and girls who, um, sadly, more guys, we need to make more women get raised investment out there. And I'm something I'm passionate around. Um, but so many guys who, who go in like at 7 million valuation take 3 million and wonder why they've got no equity left after a few years. And then they don't even bother, you know, they're not passionate about the business because they, they've got no skin in the game. So mm. I'm a big believer in lots of small rounds to get where you need to get to, especially in hardware, because I'm building like a long term industrial business that is incredibly valuable, but one that is not a cloud that will let me scale like a WhatsApp will, you know, and I know that and it's the world we're in, but we've got something really unique and no one's competing against us in a really genuine way yet. Yeah. So how, how have you found the crowdfunding process? You mentioned you had a, a, a good friend at um, Crowdcube. Is that, is that why you chose Crowdcube rather than, I mean, the obvious, the obvious one is to go to them or Cedars, right? Was there, what made you choose Crowdcube over Cedars? Yeah, so I think we did our diligence on both platforms. And I think when we first raised, so I raised on Crowdcube in 2015. And 2015 was a wild west of crowdfunding. So like Just Park had just done like three and a half million raise. There wasn't many rules. It was it was super rogue back then. So we actually crashed the Crowdcube website on our first race. It was so much traffic. Now, fast forward to today, um, Crowdcube have raised over 650 million on their platform. I think last time I checked, they've got something like 600,000 investors. They've, they're the largest network out there. Um, I wasn't that impressed with Cedars when I looked at them. Um, I've seen some other companies raise through them, but the way Crowdcube works, I was impressed. And ultimately, I was really impressed with the teams. I think Luke, Luke Lang, um, Daz West, and uh, Matt Cooper, like the kind of the, the founders and the, the main lead, they're, just, they're great guys who really get companies who understand it. So I just I built a rapport with them, and they've always been there for me when I've needed them. Um, and obviously, it's a hard business model, right? Mm. Like they're not they're not 
making insane amounts of revenue. They need they need more businesses than are available. But I think everyone I assumes, in a little bit of a niggly way, assumes that those guys are absolutely rolling in cash and not really doing anything. They're just this middleman knocking out deals. But I don't think they. I think they break even on like a three hundred raise, right? Three hundred thousand pound raise, and they break even. It really gives you an idea of the relationship they need to build with a company to take them through a couple of rounds to actually make some some justifiably good money. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, I mean, I guess the proof is in the pudding. You went back to them a second time, which tells you everything about your your level of happiness with the platform. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'd, I'd always recommend CrowdCube to anyone. I think I also, <clears throat> I probably spend, I, I meet two or three founders a week and kind of take them through the process because it is like an out-of-body experience. You do have to stop everything. You do have to commit and align your whole company around it. So I'm, I'm always happy to to have a chat with founders just to kind of give them some options on what it means because I think it's scary and you've got to be marketing-led. Um, and it's great. Look, our sales have gone up in the past month of the race because we're so out there. You know, we were in Forbes last week. We're going to be in Forbes next week. We're on the BBC. It's, it's all great for selling the vision um, because ultimately... You know, we are a new product category in its entirety. Mm, yeah, I mean, that, that's something I've always been aware of. There is a huge marketing up, up, upside to to crowdfunding, regardless of platform, as well as the monetary. Um, you know, we we both know um, the guy. You know, the guys at Mindful Chef and, and Giles. Um, you know, I understand that they a, a significant portion of the immediate financial benefit was actually in the clients that signed up. During the during the you know, mm. really really interesting. You, you you mentioned a minute ago competition. Um, who who are your main com- competitors in this space? Yeah, so we PaveGen is an off grid energy solution. So you walk on it, it generates energy. Okay, so we're then com- competing against other ways of generating energy in a city. So if you're in a park, our competition solar. Okay, so that's one side. The other side is um, the data we produce. So we're competing against vision systems, so cameras. And then secondly to that, we're competing against reward mechanics. So what I'm trying to do is I want to build a company that has the most differentiated option and and most amount of functionality possible from our product. So we'll get sign-off from the data teams, we'll get sign-off from the sustainability teams, and then finally we'll get sign-off from the marketing team. So I'm trying to get as many people in that boardroom to sign off my product. Not everyone will use every part of my product, but it's added functionality there. So um, I think that we look at competition in a couple of ways. So the first is it's going to be other renewables, and there's totally fine. It's totally fine for other ones to be in the mix too. But when you put 10 million pounds of solar on your roof and your shopping centre, you want to talk about it, and no one can see it. No one can walk on the roof. They can walk on the floor, and that can do 10% of the energy requirement of the solar, and it works really well. Um, I think we've got a couple of people looking at the space in terms of like dance floors that generate power. So if you want to have a crazy dance floor that generates energy, there is other alternatives. But we have always believed in the ethos of, of going into urban environments and having a really stringent environmental like mandate for our product, both from a, a recycling standpoint, but also from like being robust enough to work. So. I don't really have any direct competitors in the kind of urban infrastructure space. It's mainly you've got some solar you could use, and also some cool dance floor stuff that will always be a dance floor. Mm. I guess that 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 ties back to the comment you made about you are not going to be the sole solution that saves the world. It's really a collective effort, isn't it? I think that we need to educate like the new generation around energy. Like I think if you look at an airport, right, you could spend billions trying to make the airport green. But actually, to make that airport green, you should stop flying the planes out every two minutes. But that's not going to happen, is it? So I think what we need to do is we need to start to like take the next generation, educate people to live more sustainable lives, to also use their purchasing power to make big brands think differently. And I think that the idea of corporate consciousness is only just catching on. But we need consumers to help to drive that. So we, we want to be part of a mix. We want to be you know, helping amazing children like Greta and her mission for sustainability be part of that mix together. Because it's not going to be one company that solves it. But hey, if we get the top 10 companies in the world to seriously take it, like imagine if Coca-Cola started talking about green energy and saving the world. Like They could do something really impactful with their budget. Mm. Very interesting. Um, so a couple of almost more kind of general questions then about about your your journey. Um, what? So let's start on the super positive side. What what is it you know today sat here? You're most proud of what you've achieved so far. 
Yeah, so I think my vision is all about like having impact. I think if you chase financial rewards, it, it's not the right thing for a, for a business. I think if you chase impact and you do create impact, then good things happen off it. So I think some of the things I tried to do when I launched the company is I wanted to create high impact because I knew that we had like an amazing world-changing technology in PaveGen. So I think the things I, I'm most proud of is we went to a favela in Brazil. Um, we found a really challenging favela environment with incredibly amazing people, but it was a huge amount of poverty. And we, we took the soccer field up in the in the pitch, sorry, or football field even, spent too much time trying to talk <laughs> to Americans, um, put the page and technology into the football pitch, and we used people playing sport to power the lights. We did this in partnership with Shell. I persuaded some amazing people at Shell to give me the funding to make a really transformational project. And what happened was, the power of sport turned the lights on and kept them on. Um, kids were inspired about energy and suddenly started to look at it differently. So suddenly, the kids that maybe if they were lucky they'd be a, they'd work as a maid in a local hotel or you know maybe one in a million became a football star. They go, you know what? This is energy from steps. This is people power. This is science. I can be an engineer. I can invent this. I could be a scientist. So we inspired a whole generation of children. Next, the energy was used to power of the lights for businesses around the favela. So suddenly businesses popped up. And like I, I spent a summer there. I took my 70-year-old father to that favela. Um, we were welcomed with open arms. You know, they did have, there were people running around with Kalashnikovs. It was an insane environment, but it was just amazing to make that a difference. And we worked mm. with Pele, was our ambassador for it. And then we, we took it around Africa with Akon. So I think like having impact in some of these really challenging environments has been so exciting for me. You know, my, my parents spent their honeymoon in a leprosy clinic in India because they had a charity. And I'm always like, well, you know, I, I want to, I mean, I'm not guaranteeing that my honeymoon we spent in a, in a leprosy clinic, but I want to create impact and I want to do things that are going to be amazing for the world. And I will go back to Africa with a really low cost product and I will be able to really, really help those off-grid environments. And so they're the things I'm really proud of. And I think you can take that technology and you can take it to cities and take it to big brands, but actually going to like grassroots, like communities that really need it is probably what I'm most proud of. Very cool. Um, and how about almost the the other side? Um, what's what's been your biggest mistake? What 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 one action um, do you regret, or would you do differently? Or is regret too strong? Yeah, I think the first thing that yeah, I think it's important like not to have regrets. Like I didn't like I have never signed a deal that was like a noose on the company. So one, thank God I never signed one of them. I've seen a lot of them. I, I think I think it's probably more of like a personal one and the idea of like getting really into your business is important, but you need to like learn how to have a normal human life for a, a portion of time. I've you know, worked 16 hour days for a lot, a lot of the early years and, and that did have consequences. So I think now, you know, I always think if I can step out of that office and in stepping out of the office and stepping home, I can put all my troubles away and, and be able to sleep at night and go and have a lovely time with people close to me. Like that's the most important thing because that makes you better. And if you spend your whole time worrying about your company, which was basically the first seven years for me, it's really challenging. So I found things like sport and got into Ironman and marathons and cycling. And they've been really good tools that I, I had in my toolkit, but only more recently. And the first few years, it was a bit of a a bit of a horror show because I didn't really ever switch off. It was just mm. go, 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 go. And, and that doesn't work. It's interesting. You, you, you mentioned that a couple of times. You mentioned that, that, that period where you didn't see much of your friends. And I, I again, it's something that I, I, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and I, and I hear this a lot. And I think basically it comes down to you. Well, I, I don't know. And, and, and people have different opinions. I'd love to get yours. Do you think it's how the individual deals with what is ostensibly guilt you're standing away from your baby. Society tells you you should be 16 hours a day on your on your on your job. That's what that's what hustlers do, and so you feel guilty when you step away and you don't you don't actually relax and come back with more energy. So do you think it's the individual, or do you think that just for the vast majority of businesses that actually get traction out there, you just have to make that commitment 16 hours a day at a certain stage for a business that wasn't hugely funded that required some individual to pack up, you know. So, 149 rejections. Who who is going to go out there at seven in the morning and possibly get the 150th other than other than the founder? So do you think it is the individual or do you think it's just half of the course? I think if you look at the data, right, 17% of startups give a return. Okay, so pretty poor return. So I think you're entering a minefield where you're not you're not destined to fail, but it's incredibly challenging. So I think 
you know, it's like spinning many, many plates. You've got 20 plates to spin. You know, you've got to develop a product, you've got to get a sales pipeline, you've got to convert some deals, you've got to deliver on those products. So to actually get anywhere near that it does take a massive sacrifice. Um, it also does depend on the scope of the problem you're trying to deal with. Look, if you're, if you're trying to deal with a, like I, I, I met someone who had a, a really cool um, selling nuts and like really cool sustainable nuts in a packet. Like maybe for that you don't need to have quite a complicated business model to deliver it. But a lot of the models I'm seeing now um, do have these really really diverse business models that need you know you need a bank to commit big and you need all these different partners. So ultimately you do have to suck it up and just get on with it for the first few years because it's do or die. You know don't bother go and get a job and if you can't do it and also not everyone's cracked up to it. You know I, I know people close to me who who would basically be in tears for 24 months. If you look at them too hard in the eye they're crying. You know it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a hard thing and like I've been quite lucky to not quite have that emotional thing to it but I can 100% understand it and hey I have spent a few days crying when I, when I can't find a solution oh, to it. But, but it can be massively emotional as well and a real challenge for people around you yeah it, it's it's a funny you know we, we spoke about this this era of entrepreneurship there are more people setting up more businesses and yet very few people are asking the most fundamentally important question which is am I am I an entrepreneur can I do this thing because like you said if you set your sights high you are in for a couple of you're in for a ride right you really are um so what does the future hold big question I realize but what does the future hold for pave gem yeah, so I think if you look at where we are now, we've we've got product in 36 countries, you know, people, half a billion people are generating energy and data from their footsteps. What we've done is we've we've picked out um, flagship projects in, in airports, in retail environments, and smart city environments around the world, and schools. Okay, so we, we've now got our launch projects. Now, we've got a really expensive product, we know that, it's made in London. Now, what we've just done is is we've we've taken on board uh, a lead investor who's the richest man in the UK, actually richest man number one and two, the Hedinja brothers, who are the co-chairman of the Hedinja Group, a fifty billion pound um, or fifty billion dollar enterprise um, in India, but they're headquartered in London. So we've just got to an inflection point in that we've, we've got their investment. We're at the final few days of our CrowdCube raise. We uh, we we set out to raise nine hundred and fifty k. We hit that in one hour forty one minutes. Um, we're now on, I think, 1.7 million last time I checked. And so what we've done is we're going to use that money to massively reduce the cost of our product. We know it's expensive, but we're going to move production overseas. Hedinja Group are going to help. They've got a great engineering team that are going to help us reduce the cost. So one is bring the price down to make it the same price as normal flooring. And that's really important. Two, I've got one salesman on my team, right? So we, we delivered 60% growth in revenue last year in, in countries like Kazakhstan, Korea, you know, South America, and, and now we're building a team of salespeople. You know, most of it was inbound, now we're gonna be outbound. Um, and that will allow us to capitalize on this huge smart city revolution. My average deal size was 100K last year. This year we're looking at about more like 250K. And with some of the stuff on my pipeline, we're looking at, you know, we did our first million pound deal recently. I think we're gonna be breaking the five million pound deal over the next 24 months in terms of big, large, smart city contracts. So alongside that, we're also gonna to start to drive our data functionality. So the future as I see it is, millions and millions of paved gentiles installed in every single city around the world. We'll be powering parts of the cities, driving off-grid lighting, doing things like powering air, air quality monitoring, Wi-Fi hotspots, and even potentially feeding the energy back into the grid, and monetizing the data of people moving by rewarding people for their steps. So basically making the world a better place, predominantly in smart cities, and I've, I've ultimately never been more excited. It feels a bit like we're starting a company all over again because I've got funding and I've got a cool product. Now, beginning, I didn't really have a product that worked and didn't really have any money, but now we've got capital, we've got a fantastic team. So it really is the time for us. You know, Asia is gonna be one of our big growth markets alongside the Middle East, and we're, we're so excited. Next week, we're doing our largest ever installation in Hong Kong. Um, and we just closed last Friday our largest European contract. So uh, we're, we're breaking records every day and I'm, I'm so excited for what the future holds. Mm. You mentioned it a couple of times. If, if there is, if you're, if, if I was to ask you what the most important metric in your business, I think there's a few, my mind would wander onto a couple of numbers, but is it that, what does, this, what does it cost per square foot? to put this stuff down and, and, and your goal of bringing that right down. I assume you want to get this down to 120 quid, 100 quid a square, square meter or something, right? So it's comparable to just your normal commercial floor. Is that, is that the most important metric for the future? So 
there's a couple of metrics. So the, the, fir the first KPI is the cost per square meter, right? So today it's high. We've got a plan, you know, I want to get it to 50 to $100. That's my ultimate goal. Do I have a blueprint that will get me exactly there? No, not today, but we, we've got a vision to do that. And I can execute down to pretty near that price given where we are today. Uh, two is data revenue. So data revenue was 14% of our revenue last year. You know, we have a software as a service component that's growing. So growing that is really important. And then average deal size. So we work as hard for a 5K contract and we do a 500K contract. So we wanna be this kind of like Intel inside or ARM model where we're powering these big projects. So larger contracts are certainly where we're seeing the business go and that's like a big metric that my team are monitored on. Mm, interesting. We've just had the most beautiful segue into the end of this show because you mentioned the blueprint. Thank you. Accidentally, but amazing. So um, the name of the show is uh, The Startup Blueprint. Um, and I end every show in the same way, which is by asking you sat here in 2019 to imagine a scenario where you're going back to 2009 and you are able to hand your younger self the perfect blueprint for how to run PaveGen. I'm going to ask you a few questions, quick fire questions um, about what you would put in that blueprint. So here we go. God. What is the most important characteristic that a founder needs? Confidence. Most important daily habit? Execution. Biggest mistake to avoid? Not getting in bed with the wrong people uh, from an investor standpoint and, and potential client standpoint. One piece of advice when it comes to managing your finances and cash flow? Cash is king and you really gotta be on your cash flow like a hawk. You've got to know if you're going to run out of money in two months, that's all you need to worry about. Think about Don't wait until it's six weeks in. You've got two weeks runway. You've got to make sure you're on your cash flow as much as you possibly can be. One piece of advice when it comes to sales. I think sales is all about building relationships and telling stories. So I just look at it like I go out and I make friends all around the world who are amazing people. And as long as you can build relationships, then you can have trust and honesty and transparency, which, you know, if you both want the same thing and you're doing a big contract together, it's so much easier with that trust and transparency rather than like cold relationships. One piece of advice when it comes to marketing. I think we live in an era where marketing isn't taking out uh, magazine adverts, right? You've got to be multifaceted in your approach and have integrated campaigns. But I just think tell truthful stories because it's amazing the stuff that's happened even just through social outreach. So just, just tell honest stories all the time and be genuine with your approach. One piece of advice when it comes to hiring the right people hire A-grade candidates. If you're, if you're, if you're, well, if you're A-grade, hire A-star candidates. Always hire the best possible people and don't worry about cost. Uh, sadly, we haven't always been able to do that because we haven't had any money, but looking forward is so important. Hire the best of the best, the best that you can find at that moment. One piece of advice when it comes to building the right company culture. I guess it's lead by example and then empower people. So I think that's that's really important, and, and I've I've definitely held on to held on to power for too long in the early days. You know, micromanaging. So it's an important one. Let let empower others. Final question, and the final piece of advice you're going to give to yourself. I love this phrase. The lift doors are closing as you're handing over the blueprint. What is the final piece of advice you give to yourself? probably say like when you've got the chance to to raise money like raise it and and like don't have big gaps between fundraisers like always be raising always be getting investors ready because it, it takes a lot to start a new round from scratch and I, I definitely feel like we've delayed ourselves a bit by not being ready and capitalizing as and when we needed to I'd love to have quick quick capital rounds when you get that big contract I need to deliver on it What a great business and what a great episode. There is certainly a lot to be learned from Lawrence's journey professionally and personally. So what are the key takeaways? Firstly, failure can provide valuable lessons in life. Lawrence's failure with Eon became an important source of motivation and clearly played a vital role in his decision to start PaveGem. 
And speaking of motivation and mindset, this episode provides a valuable reminder of the importance of self-belief and understanding what really drives you. Lawrence clearly believes that what he is doing is important and necessary, and it is this belief that has helped him to persevere. Lawrence believes that sales is the lifeblood of any business. Moreover, he believes that the CEO should be the best salesman in the team. What I really took away from listening to Lawrence is that a good sales technique requires two things, an ability to build a relationship and storytelling. Get these two things right and a lot of other things click into place. Pavegen has raised finance in a very specific way, favoring smaller and more frequent rounds. In effect, this has required Lawrence to constantly remain in fundraising mode, something that doesn't appear to have negatively affected either his ability to raise or to grow the business. And there is certainly something to be said for a young business that is able to raise at short notice and take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. But the biggest takeaway for me is that entrepreneurs, in Lawrence's words, need to learn how to have a normal human life. The default mode is all too often 16 hour plus days, seven days a week. As this episode shows, this can have horror show scale consequences on your personal life. The goal is finding the right balance, which Lawrence clearly is these days. And when you do find this balance, it is not only your health and happiness that will improve, but the health and happiness of your business as well. My name is Jared Williams, and this has been The Startup Blueprint, the podcast designed for entrepreneurs, startups, and anyone who's ever wanted to turn a good idea into a great business.